Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your goodness and for your kindness. As we sang this morning, you are the King of creation. You sustain all things. You uphold all things. You rule over all things. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to believe it. We pray for the many who are not with us this morning. We pray for those who are sick, for those who are traveling. God, we pray that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, assure them of your love and your goodness. And I thank you, Lord, for all who are gathered here this morning. I ask, God, that as we turn to your word and we look at it, that you, by your spirit and by your word, would speak to us, instilling truths in our hearts. So we pray, as we so often do, what we know not, that you would teach us, what we have not, that you would give us, and what we are not, you would make us, all for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Well, thus far in our series, we're continuing on our series in creation, and thus far we've been considering what we might call the big picture concepts related to the creation account. So I've been focusing on the theological, the philosophical, we might even say the anthropological implications of Genesis chapter 1. We've been asking that question, how does the Genesis account of creation shape the way that we think about God, shape the way that we think about this world, and shape the way that we think about ourselves. Well, this morning we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're actually um, going away from the big picture for a little bit to dive down into the texts of this chapter. And so we're going to examine each of the six days of creation. And generally, for those of you who are wondering why I didn't read the scripture before I pray, generally I read the passage, passage of scripture and then I pray, and then I preach on it. The reason why I didn't do that this morning is because we're going to be looking at each of these verses. I'm, by the end of my sermon, I will have read all of chapter 1. So that's why I didn't read. We're going to read here in a minute. Now before we get into each of the six days of creation and what God made in each of these six days, I want to give a few initial comments to help us have a right frame of mind or to read the text in a right kind of way. So one of the important aspects of properly interpreting Scripture, any passage of Scripture, is a right determining of what genre or what kind of literature you're reading, what genre it is. You might say, well, we're not going to read the Psalms in the same way that we read 1 Samuel, or we read the book of Revelation. Those of you who are familiar with those books know that they're written in a different kind of genre. They're different kind of literature. Now, there have been scholars over the years who have proposed that Genesis 1 ought to be read as Hebrew poetry. Now, this results in a less than straightforward reading of the text then. Indeed, sometimes it means that the only thing that chapter 1 really affirms to us is that God started everything that we see today. But there's little evidence to the claim that Genesis 1 was written as Hebrew poetry. It's actually pretty clearly written as a narrative, but it is written as it's a kind of prose narrative. It's, it's some some uh, theologians call it exalted prose. It has an exalted style to it, 
so that there are literary patterns and certain phrases that you see repeated throughout. There is a structure, a very clear structure laid out in Genesis chapter 1. But what this means is, because it's narrative, even though it's exalted prose narrative, what this means is that we can expect that the text is really actually telling us something about what happened in the beginning and how it happened, okay? So I think a right reading of Genesis 1 is a pretty straightforward reading of Genesis 1. But we do need to be careful, we do need to be aware of our modern expectations that might not be in line with the intention of the text. So let me explain. It's one thing to take these words, to read these words in Genesis 1 and take them at face value. But it's another to expect that what it's setting out to do, what Genesis 1 is actually setting out to do, is to answer all of our questions, some of which are unique to the modern world that we live in. We have all kinds of questions that the text does not set out to answer. You see, we want precise details. And Genesis 1 hardly gives any of those. Genesis 1 actually paints in very broad brush strokes. But there's another challenge that we face. And that is that we have all been influenced by a kind of scientific materialism. And this makes it hard for us to understand some of the way the Bible speaks about our world. It doesn't speak, listen carefully, it doesn't speak from the perspective of the astronaut, nor does it describe things with the language of the astronomer. It speaks from the viewpoint of common man with the language of daily experience. So it says things like, God made two lights in the expanse of the heavens, one to rule the day and one to rule the night. But the modern enlightened individual comes along and says, well, actually, technically, the moon just reflects the light of the sun, so it's not its own light. But you see, the Bible doesn't speak that way. And honestly, neither do we most of the time. The Bible describes things in a phenomenological way. In other words, as man experiences them. So what light do we see at night? Well, we see the light of the moon. And that's why we say, and this is why I say most of the time we speak this way. That's why we say things like, Wow, the moon sure is bright tonight. And nobody really likes that guy who comes along who says, actually, what's really happening? So, we need to keep this in mind. This is the way that the Bible speaks, from the experience of man, not in the kind of scientific language that we're used to. An example of how modern science has influenced how we think is that modern man, and you would too, denies that the earth is the center of the universe or that it's the center of our solar system. We know everything doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth and everything in our solar system revolves around the sun, right? Well, yes, if we're talking about the movements of the planets from the perspective of outer space, we can say that the earth spins as it revolves around the sun, sure. But then let me ask you, are we spinning? And the question is, what is our reference point? From a human perspective and experience, the earth is our reference point. And in that sense, we aren't spinning at all. But furthermore, 
why would the movements of the planets in space determine whether or not the Earth is the focal point or center of the universe? Think about that. Theologically speaking, or we could say when it comes to meaning in the cosmos, God has made the earth to be the center of his activity and the focal point of his plan. Therefore, in that sense, the earth really is the center of the cosmos. Listen to Herman Bovink from Reformed Dogmatics. The earth may be a thousand times smaller than many other planets, he says. In an ethical sense, it is and remains the center of the universe. It is the only planet fit to be the dwelling place for higher beings. Here, the kingdom of God has been established. Here, the struggle between light and darkness is being waged. Here, in the church, God is preparing for himself an eternal dwelling. So, we need to keep in mind the way that we think today and how it's been influenced by a kind of modern scientific materialism. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the days. But with that said, let's jump into the text. And we're going to start in verse 1, in the beginning. Verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I think this is best to understand. It's best to understand these verses as describing what happened prior to the days of creation. In this case, verse 1 is the initial creative act of God which brought the heavens and the earth into existence from nothing. This happened before day 1 when God began separating, forming, and filling the heavens and the earth. And we're told very little about God's first act of creation. But we should know that when day one begins, there is already what we might call raw material that God is working with. At least some of his labor, at least some of it, in the days of creation, involves forming and fashioning what is already there. Like when he causes the waters to gather and the land to appear. The land was already there. Or, think about his creation of man. We're told in chapter 1 that God said, let us make man in our image, and then he proceeds to do so. But then in chapter 2, we get more information, and we're told that God formed man from the dust of the ground. So those accounts are not at odds with one another, because to make, or even at times to create, doesn't necessarily mean to bring something into being from nothing. That certainly is the case in verse 1, when it says God created the heavens and the earth, but not necessarily the case in all that God makes in the six days of creation. Now I say that, but we need to keep in mind that all of God's work in the days of creation are presented to us as the miraculous and the creative work of God. As we'll soon get to, God's rest on the seventh day is his ceasing from the work of creation, not from his work of providence. Providence is God's work to sustain what we consider the natural systems and processes in our world. 
So it was not via natural process that God, God caused the land to appear or the plants to grow or the birds to fill the skies or the animals to creep on the earth. No, creation was his direct and miraculous work to establish what he would then later uphold by his work of providence. Understanding the difference between those two things is very important, yet they correlate. They belong together. But I use that term miraculous because it's important for us to understand in all six days of creation, whether God is forming something, establishing something, or creating something out of nothing, it is his miraculous, unique, creative work that he rests from on day seven and onward. From day seven and on, it's God's work of providence. Okay, then day one, verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So day one, day one consists of the creation of light and then the separation of light from darkness. We're not told the source of that light, but that simply there was light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And therefore, the first day began as our days begin with light. Before there was light, there was no day or night, but the coming of light marks off the first day as it separates the day from the night. Now, though we're not told the source of this light, the point remains that day one sets the stage for the pattern that every reader of Genesis would have experienced. Within God's providential order, the day begins with light and it ends with darkness until the next day. Again, in creation, God establishes what he maintains by his providence. What is described for the reader in each of these days explains the natural order that they see and they experience in everyday life. So as the darkness, you can think about this every morning, if you get up before the sun rises, as the darkness dissipates in the early dawn before the sun even appears over the horizon, so too on the first day light came and separated the day from the night. Vern Poitras points to this very well and explains this very well when he says, God gives the narrative in a way that is accessible to ordinary people. He speaks of things that happened once and for all, that happened once and for all, and that the addressees, the readers, did not themselves directly experience. But they can nevertheless understand what God's mean, God means, he says, because the originating events are analogous to things that happen within God's providential order within which we live now. So then that brings us to verse 2. Look at, or sorry, day 2, verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. 
Now, some have interpreted these verses to propose that initially, when God created the heavens and the earth, initially there was a canopy of water vapor or water of, of some kind in some states, maybe vapor, above the earth's atmosphere. And that this was the waters that, that, that came down when God flooded the earth. Now, while this isn't a matter of orthodoxy, and I, I wouldn't spend a lot of time fighting about this, I don't find the arguments for this theory to be very persuasive. First of all, consider that the Hebrew word for heaven or heavens can refer to the sky, what we call the sky, all the way up into outer space and in, 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 as, as far as we can imagine, right? The heavens really are simply what we see above us. And that includes the expanse in which the birds fly and the expanse that contains the starry hosts. So to give you a picture of this, look at in verse 17, we're told that God placed the sun and moon in the expanse of the heavens. And then look at verse 20. What are we told there? Well, we're told that God said, let the birds fly above the earth, across, or on the face of the expanse of the heavens. So you see how that word is used. Again, it's used from human perspective, looking up and everything that you see from where the birds fly on upward is called the heavens. And this means that the expanse that separated the waters could simply refer to the sky, what we call the sky. The water above then would be the waters that constitute the clouds. Now, one of the reasons why I prefer this interpretation is, again, the recognition of that phenomenological language that Scripture employs. The canopy theory has a layer of water above the Earth's atmosphere that wouldn't have been recognizable or visible to human sight or experience. And by the time that Genesis was written, according to the canopy theory, it wouldn't have even been there. So when an ancient Israelite read this account of the waters in the sky, what would they have understood it to mean? Well, I think it's pretty clear that they would have understood it as the clouds, which they could see and they could experience and, and watch their development in the sky and then experience when it rained. So again, God's creative act has its counterpart in the ordinary work of God's providence in the natural order of things. God separated the water with the expanse of the sky and he upholds this in nature. The clouds continue to develop. To develop. They gather water from the earth. They hold that water and then they dispense that water again every time it rains. Day two of creation explains how that came to be. God separated the waters with the expanse of the sky. And day three, verse nine, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. Having then separated the light from the darkness, the waters with the expanse of the sky, now God separates the sea from the dry land. And the language of let the dry land appear gives the impression that prior to this, the land was there, but it was covered with water. Psalm 104 gives us this description, starting in verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth. The common experience of the ancient reader of Genesis would have corresponded to this reality in nature that waters gather together and when they recede, dry land appears. Every time a local flood happened, this was illustrated for them. And likewise, the separation of dry land from rivers and seas continued. Floods may threaten the ordinary boundaries of the land and sea or the land and waters, but the waters always receded. And except for one extraordinary event in human history, there was always dry land that was separate from the sea. But this isn't all that happens on day three. Unlike the previous days, this day has two parts to it. And the second part is the sprouting of vegetation, plants, and trees that bear fruit. By God's command, the land then is equipped with plant life that will support the animal and human life that is to follow. And the planting of seeds and the sprouting and the growth of those plants in the natural order experienced by man is analogous to God's work in creation on that third day. His work of creation then is again reflected in nature by the hand of his providence. Man can understand this account because we've seen what it looks like and what it means for vegetation to sprout. So then day four. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two greater lights, or the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, most people, when they get to these verses, there's a question that's raised, or they raise a question. They say, wait a second. How could there be light and days with evening and morning from day one if there was no sun until day four? How could there be days at all if there was no sun? Well, those are fair questions. And there have been a number of attempts in church history to resolve this apparent dilemma. For example, Augustine, the famous 
bishop from the 4th century proposed that the days in Genesis 1 were simply a literary technique of describing the order in creation. And that what is detailed to us then in days 1 through 6 actually happened, get ready for it, not over the course of billions of years, but in one single moment. Now, I don't think that does justice to the text, nor do some of the other theories that supposedly deal with what really happened. In my opinion, it's best for us to maintain an attitude of humility on things like this. The text doesn't tell us how it was that there was light on day one and evening and morning from that day until day four, just that there was. So either we, we say, well, I'm not sure how it was, I don't know, which is fine to do, or we consider possible explanations that don't contradict the clear meaning of the text. Now, one of those I would say is it, it's grammatically possible for God made two great lights, that phrase, to mean that he fashioned them in a particular way on that day. So it could be that they were already present, but that God formed them further and set them on their particular courses on day four. But even this reading is not necessary to make sense of the order. For God himself could have been the source of light on day one, And likewise, he could have directly regulated evening and morning in a very unique way on day one, two, and three. Would that have been too hard for God? Right? Is that too miraculous? Hardly. He made everything out of nothing. He created the heavens and the earth. So we can say, that's possible. What we can be certain of is that God's work on day four establishes the natural rhythms of the sun and moon, which from man's experience and viewpoint are what we call the lights that rule the day and the the light that rules the day and the light that shines at night. And let me just say another word about this. I had mentioned our kind of scientific view of things and not to belabor this point, but the way that the sun, moon, and stars are presented in Scripture is not from the scientific framework or way of thinking about these things. Think about from the experience of man, what is a star? From our experience, a star is a shining light in the night sky. It's a shining light in the night sky. That's what a star is. Not, from our experience, not a giant ball of burning gas light years away in space. Okay? To quote a character in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that's not what a star is, only what it's made of. You see, in God's world, a thing cannot be defined or simply understood by determining what matter it is composed of, how big or how far it actually is away. Think about this for me with, a, uh, with me for a minute. In a sense... Abraham had a better understanding of the stars than most expert astronomers do today. Abraham had a better, in a sense, Abraham had a better understanding of the stars than most expert astronomers do today. Every time Abraham looked up at the great expanse 
of a clear night sky littered with stars, he was reminded of the incomprehensible nature of God's promises and plan to bring, bring blessings upon him and upon this whole world. So what were the stars to Abraham? Signs of God's promise. Signs of God's grace. Testimonies of his faithfulness. You see, what is a star? What is a sun? What is the moon? Getting a closer look doesn't necessarily mean we'll get closer to what they really are, or more importantly, what they really mean. You see how much we, how, how hard that is for us to understand? Now, day five, look at verse 20. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So on day five, the seas and the skies are filled with creatures Notice we aren't given any names for the, any of the animals. Only broad categories like living creatures that swim in the water or fly above the earth. They are according to their kind, which is a non-technical term that speaks of there being a variety of each kind of animal in each of these spheres. Those of one kind are animals that belong together as they can reproduce after themselves. So we aren't given a classification system here, just a simple description of the creatures that God made on day five. In chapter two, we find that part of Adam's job is to name all the animals. So God doesn't name the animals, but he leaves that up to Adam. That's part of Adam's job. And so we could say there's a place for man to study the animal kingdom and to name the animals and to sort the animals and put them into various categories. But as we see here, that's not God's intention to lay all of that out for man in the creation account. And as man observes all of the aquatic life, as man observes birds and bats and bees and searches out all the wonders of the animal kingdom, all that man discovers testifies to the creative work of God on day five and on day six. Look at verse 24. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So land animals are described for us in these three categories. Livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. You know, it's, it's not exactly the precise 
taxonomy that we might be accustomed to, but it was sufficient to the reader to put the pieces together and conclude that all of the animals that live on the earth were created on day six. And then we could say God saves the best for last on day six. We're going to be returning to the creation of man at a later Sunday. But for now, it's sufficient to note that mankind is presented to us here in Genesis 1 as the pinnacle of God's good creation. Mankind is unique. He's uniquely made in God's image. He's given the honored role of having dominion over all the rest of God's creatures. Now, if you, if you step back and you compare all of these six days and what we just looked at, God creating on each of these six days, you'll notice a pattern. The pattern is there are actually two sets of three. These six days are two sets of three. And the first set matches the second set. The first set of three matches the second set of three. If you had a chart, which I had it up there for you, but I don't, but if you have notes, you can draw a chart and you go day one, day two, day three in the first column, and then you write day four, day five, day six in the second column. When you look across, you'll notice this pattern. The first day, God creates light. And the fourth day, you go across to the second set, the first of the second set, the fourth day, what does he do? He fashions the sun and moon to regulate the light and darkness upon the earth. Now go down to the second day. He separates the waters with the expanse of the sky. And what does he create on the fifth day? Look across, second, second day of the second set, the fifth day. He fills the seas with creatures and the skies with birds, or actually, literally, it just means flying things. And then go down to the third day. He makes dry land to appear, and he causes the vegetation upon the land. And then the sixth day, he creates land animals and man to inhabit the dry land with the plants already there for them, providing them the food and nourishment they need. So the pattern shows us that God first forms the environment, making it suitable for life and the rhythms necessary for life and then he forms the creatures, great and small, to inhabit his good world. And the account ends like this, and I'm going to read into Genesis chapter 2, because the editors who added in the chapter breaks put it in the wrong place. So we really, the chapter 1 really should go all the way to the end, or sorry, all the way to Genesis chapter 2 verse 3. This is the end of the creation account. And God saw everything that he made, verse 31, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it God rest from all his work that he had done in creation. Notice that on the seventh day, it is the only day that does not end with evening and morning. Why is that? It's because the six days of creation had an end. Evening and morning, when we read that, did you notice? 
Each of them end with evening and morning, the third day, evening and morning, the fourth day. Evening and morning was not the summary of the day. It was the signal of the end of the day. Evening and morning meant night. The day has ended now. Night that stretched until the morning of the next day. But the seventh day doesn't have an evening and morning precisely because God's rest from his work of creation doesn't have an end. By the seventh day, his work of creation was complete. Now, this doesn't mean that God is no longer active in this world, but simply that he is no longer engaged in his work of creation. His work of providence and governance continues, as does his work of redemption and salvation for a rebellious race to which we belong. And in all of his works, we're given ample testimony of the goodness and the kindness of our God. All of it. All of creation, from the land to the sea, from the sky into space, the moon and sun and all their starry hosts, every living creature that has breath, it all comes from the Creator God. None of it, we step back and look at Genesis 1 and we say, none of it evolved through time and chance acting on matter. No, it was the miraculous work of an almighty God. And it remains and it continues by His sovereign and good will. The sun rises because God commands it to rise. The winds blow and the storm clouds gather because He is pleased to pour out rain, both on the just and on the unjust. Plants sprout and bear, and bear seed and fruit for the enjoyment and the livelihood of His creatures. Our hearts beat because He's pleased to give us life and breath, and every breath we have is a gift from Him. And every morning and every evening we experience is His kindness shown to us. Which all means that we owe everything to Him, and everything we have we owe to Him. And the measure of His kindness becomes even greater and greater as you read through the, the, the biblical story. Because not a single one of us have lived as if that was, were the case, right? As if everything we have comes from God. But God, being rich in mercy, having a never-ending storehouse of grace, demonstrated His love, even for rebellious and ungrateful sinners like us, by sending His Son to purchase our salvation, to turn us from rebels into worshipers, from a, to, to take from us a disposition of entitlement to a disposition of humility and thankfulness, from seeing ourselves as gods, from seeing ourselves as the center of it all to seeing the triune God as the true center. And so we say along with the Apostle Paul, for from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So give thanks to the Lord, Psalm 136, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, church. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by his understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over night. For his steadfast love 
endures forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you that you are the creator God, that everything comes from you. Lord, that in a miraculous and wonderful way, you created this earth in all the inhabitants and you made it for your glory. And you still providentially sustain and govern it, Lord. And an even greater thing to us, you've done this work of redemption. You've come into this world yourself, a world that was rebellious, set against you, not giving you the thanks and praise for being the creator God, but worshiping the creature instead of the creator. You came into our world. Your grace had no end. It knew no bounds. You came to save us, a rebel race, that we might turn from our idolatry, that we might turn from our complaining, for our ungratefulness, that we might turn from our lives attempting to live as if we are God, that we might turn to you and know life under your blessed rule and your blessed care. We thank you, God, for these wonderful truths and, that we, and we ask that by your grace you would help us to live accordingly, remembering every day that we see is a gift from you, enjoying your creation and giving you all the praise for it and remembering our salvation in Jesus Christ. And this we pray in his name, our Savior, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and for all time, and amen.